Good morning, church. And uh, welcome to Tri-Village. My name is Will. I'm the pastor here at the church, and it's such a blessing to have you here with us. And listen, if you're new here, we are so glad that you are visiting us. We hope you have just a, a wonderful experience. And uh, one of the things that I like to do is I always stand by the steps uh, in the back. So I uh, would love to just shake your hand and personally greet you. And uh, really, really grateful to have you here with us this morning. Now, this morning, as you can tell by the screen behind me, we are starting a brand new series entitled Marriage, Singleness, and Parenting, in which we will be addressing the subjects of marriage, singleness, and parenting. So you could tell that the team really thought deeply and creatively about the title for this one. Um, and so that's what we're going to be addressing. Now, uh, this morning, what we're going to do is we are, what we're going to do is we're going to spend five weeks in this series, and we are starting with the subject of marriage. Now, what I want to do before we jump in, though, is I want to tell you, if you're sitting here and you are single, uh, one of the things that I want to do, because we have so many singles that come to our church, one of the things that I want to do is I am going to be addressing you throughout. So even though we might be talking about marriage today, I'm going to talk about singles a lot, because I think that you guys are just such a big part of our church in particular and the, the greater church in general. So we're going to be talking to you throughout. But this morning, we are going to be addressing the subject of marriage. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Now, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we have Bibles in the pew rack in the back. So you can go ahead and uh, go to that rack over there, and there will be uh, Bibles for you. Um, and if you really don't want to take that walk, that's fine. We will have the passage on the screen here behind me. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Here's what it says uh, in verse 18. If you're with me, say amen. amen. Here's what it says, verse 18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this, now, uh, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's the word of the Lord. Now, this morning, like I already mentioned, I want to speak to you from the subject of marriage. And what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at marriage under three headings, okay? So if you can put those three points up. This morning, we're going to begin by looking at the making of marriage. And then after we look at that, we are going to look at the mandate of marriage. And then we're going to conclude by looking at the meaning of marriage. So the making, the mandate, and the meaning, okay? So we're going to begin this morning by looking at the making of marriage. In this passage, there is someone who makes marriage. There is someone who creates marriage. And according to the passage, that someone is not Adam and that someone is not Eve. There is someone who makes marriage and the person, according to Scripture, is God. God is the creator and maker of marriage. Now, to show you that, um, I want to look at verse 18 again. Look what it says in verse 18. In verse 18, it says, The Lord God said... It is not good 
for the man to be alone. Now, for us, that doesn't really mean much, but here's why this was so significant. Because up to this point, God had said everything was good. Everything God had created up to this point was good in his eyes. And then all of a sudden, he sees something and he identifies it as not good. Now, the word good is a very interesting word in Hebrew because the word good, it means appropriate. It means beautiful. It is the opposite of moral evil. So all of a sudden, God sees something that is not good in creation. And the question is, what does he see? Well, he, he says, it is not good for what? For man to be alone. Now, the word alone in Hebrew is, is an interesting word because what it, what it means, the word alone, the word means not just to be, you know, off somewhere, but it means to be separated. It means to be isolated. It means to be a part of something bigger and to be ripped apart from that thing that you should be a part of. That's what alone there means, Okay. It means to be separated, it means to be isolated, and to be ripped apart from something bigger. So he sees Adam, and he says, this is not good. You should not be alone. Now, the question that you should be asking is, why is God saying that something's not good? Sin hasn't even entered the world yet, so is he admitting that he made a mistake? Why why would he say that something is not good? Well, listen, the reason why God is saying it is not because something, it's not because he made a mistake, but God, when he created Adam... According to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God created Adam, he created Adam in his own image. Now, here's the thing about God that the Bible teaches. God, even though he is one being, he is three persons. So he's one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where he says, I will make man in our image, that's actually a passage that a lot of Jewish scholars struggle with because Jews don't believe in the Trinity. And then all of a sudden God says, I'm going to make man in our image. And they're like, wait, wait, what? Our? Who's our? He's, he's, he's by himself, but he's not. Because even though God is one, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so when God creates Adam, he, he wasn't, God, Adam was not made in the image of a he, he was made in the image of a we, okay? So because Adam was made in the image of a we, he will not be fully himself until he's in community because the being that he was made in the image of is also in community, okay? That's why God says, no, no, there's something wrong here. If you are actually made in my image, there has to be a we because I am a we. I've been in community for all of eternity and I need you to be in community as well. And so he looks at the situation and he doesn't like what he sees. Now, what's interesting is that the person who actually does something about it is not Adam. The person who does something about it is God. And if you look at the passage, all the verbs in the passage have to do with God. Look what it says uh, in, uh, in verse 18. It says, I will make a helper. So the verb is about God. Then if you go down to verse 21, it says, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a sleep and he took one of the man's ribs and he placed, he, co- he closed up the place with flesh and he made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. So every verb in this passage has to do with God. In other words, the person who thought about marriage, the person who implemented marriage, the person who made marriage was God. And the passage says that he brings her to him. Now, I heard one commentator put it this way. He said, in the first wedding in all of human history, the person who walked the woman down the aisle was God. The father, God the father is who walked Eve down the aisle. She brought, he brought her to her husband. And so God is the, the, the creator of marriage. He is the implementer of marriage. He is the one who made it. We didn't. He made it. And what I want you to see in this passage is that all Adam does 
is sleep. That's, that, that's the only thing Adam brings to the table. He, he sleeps. He took a nap. Okay? And for some of you, you're like, amen, amen, because that's my spiritual gift. I love napping, right? Like, like, all right, so napping is biblical. But that's all the brother did. He fell asleep. He wakes up, and then he's like, oh, dang, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Who is that? Right? Like, he didn't even know what God was doing. You know, one of the things that Martin Luther says is that in his commentary on Genesis, he says that before the fall happened, we were, since man was created in the image of God, pre-fall man would have been, would have been an incredible, amazing specimen. It, it, it's quite possible that man was stronger than the lion and had better eyesight than an eagle. That's what Luther argues. And so when the woman shows up, she had to be fine. Okay, she was fine. He's like, oh, hey, who's that? <laughs> right? This is pre-fall women, Okay. So, so, so all the brother did was sleep. He fell asleep. He took a nap. He got up, and there she was. That's all he, that's all he did, okay? Now, here's why I need you guys to see that. There's, I think there's a, a principle here for, for people here who are single or, or are thinking about dating one day and getting married one day. What I need you to see here is I want you to see the, the sovereignty and the providence of God when it comes to relationships, specifically romantic relationships. Listen, you're sitting here and, and you're single, and one of the things that's hard about being single in the church is that in the church, in traditional and more traditional settings, marriage is seen as the apex of human relationships. And so what people who are married do is they come by you and they're like, oh, you're not married? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll pray for you. Like if you, had disease, like you have a disease or something, right? And oh, oh, you know, oh, we'll put you on our prayer list, we promise. Yeah, the, hopefully the Lord will fix that. And so one of the things that happens is it's, it's, when on Sunday morning, it's, it's like, okay, I'm going to try my best to honor God in my singleness, right? But after a year of that, or two years of that, after your third Valentine's Day at your parents' house, you know what I mean? You're like, uh, this ain't going to fly anymore, okay? And so what starts to happen is you start trying to take matters into your own hands. You start trying to lower your standards because you just don't want to be alone. You lower your standards, you don't pray about it, and you go out to do something on your own. But what I want you to see in this passage is I want you to see the sovereignty of God, the power of God. God's the one that selects Eve for Adam. Adam wasn't even thinking about finding Eve. God is the one that creates her. God is the one that brings her. So listen, I'm not telling you not to pursue people. I'm not telling you not to try online dating if that's what you want to do. I'm not even telling you not to shower. Please shower, okay? But what I'm saying is, is that you need to see how powerful God is. God is sovereign over your romance. Outside of the decision you make about Jesus, who you marry is the second most important decision you'll ever make. Listen, God is sovereign over that. So if you're single here and you're not praying about your future spouse, then you're doing it wrong. Okay, you, you could do a lot of other things than just pray, but you can't do anything until you've prayed. Okay? And parents, if you're sitting here and you're worried about your children, you, I don't care if your, child, your, children, your child is 25 or two and a half, you should be praying for the spouse of your children now. Because God is the one that orchestrates it. Even as I look at my relationship with Lily, I always, you know, when I was going through it, I felt like it was me that was initiating it. I felt like it was me that ended up there. But then I look at how it all happened. If it wasn't, I, I literally can't even begin to tell you how many layers are to this story. Like there was, there was a mom who was a housewife, 
uh, her name was uh, Jean Birchie. She came to be a believer. Then she led her husband to be a believer who, who then owned a Christian, uh, who owned a company. My mom worked at that company. This Christian owner had Bible studies happen at the company. My mom met the Lord at one of these Bible studies. Then that, that she got invited to a church. We show up at that church, and at that church is where I met my wife. But God was orchestrating it from the beginning. See, I can make it seem like it was me that did it, but it wasn't me that did it. God was orchestrating it from the beginning, and so you need to believe in the sovereignty and the power of God. I'm not saying not do anything, but I'm just saying don't do anything until you've prayed about it. Because if God's not involved, all you're going to do is lower your standards. Listen, listen, let me put this. If you're dating someone who's not a Christian, I'm going to tell you with the full authority of, of, of the Bible, that person's not the person for you. They're not. They're like, oh, but you don't know them. They're sweet. They have a cross tattoo. <laughs> they say the Lord's name in vain. It's kind of like praising him, right? No, it's not. It's not. So, so I want you to see the power and the sovereignty of God when it comes to relationships. God is powerful enough to give Adam a wife when he's sleeping. I think he's powerful enough to find you a wife or a husband. If that's his will, okay? So, so, so you see that the, the, God is the one making marriage, not just in that he's the one that takes the initiative, but you also see that God's the one making marriage because he's so intentional with how he does it. You see, God could have easily just been really random about the whole thing, but he's very intentional with how he does it. Because if you look at the passage, God, it says in, in the second half of verse 20 right there, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And so God is not being random about this. God is looking for a specific person, a suitable helper, it says in the Hebrew. Now, the, the word, the, the, that, that phrase there is very important because the word suitable, here's what the word suitable in Hebrew means. The word suitable means someone who is opposite of you, yet equal to you. Someone or something that it's opposite of you, but at the same time equal to you. And so a, a suitable helper is someone who was the same as Adam, but at the same time different from Adam, okay? A counterpart, if you will. Then the word helper is probably the most fascinating word in this whole passage because the word helper was actually a military term in the Hebrew. And here's what it was. The word helper in English seems almost like Adam needed a secretary, like he needed an administrative assistant or a slave, and God's like, oh, I'll go get you one. But, but that's not what the word helper means in Hebrew. It's actually this beautiful, beautiful word. And you know it doesn't mean that because God in the Old Testament describes himself as a helper. So he uses the same phrase to describe himself. Here's what the word there means in Hebrew. A helper is, 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 is a military term. So I, here's the mental picture that I want you to have. Imagine that you are a, a lieutenant or a general in battle and your army is being overwhelmed. You're getting beat down and you're losing, you're losing in the battle. The word helper, the picture of the word helper is when you call reinforcements, uh, another, another platoon of soldiers shows up at just the right time and compliments you and provides the help that you need. That's what the word helper means. It's a military term. So it's not less than, it's equal but different. So I would almost put it like this, equal but different. It's almost like you're the infantry, you're the ground soldiers, and then all of a sudden uh, God sends uh, the Air Force. Both soldiers, but different. It's a different type, of, different type of help. That's what that is. So it doesn't mean your personal assistant. It doesn't mean your slave. It actually has nothing to do with submission. It, all ha it has everything to do with symmetry. There's symmetry here. 
God gives him what he doesn't have. So this is why this is important, guys. Listen, God didn't give Adam Eve in order to complete Adam. He gave Adam Eve in order to complement Adam. Let me, let me say that again. A romantic partner doesn't complete you. They complement you. The only person that completes you is God. Amen? So that's why there's people who never get married and honor God their whole life. Because you don't need a person to complete you. you a person can complement you, but a per, only God can complete you. It's like two puzzle pieces. A puzzle piece can stay by themselves, or they can be connected to another puzzle piece. But they're, not, they're, not, they're like not any less a puzzle piece if they never get connected to another puzzle piece. So, so a, a person, a romantic partner, compliments you but doesn't complete you. Only God can do that. Okay? And so you see just, it, it, it's just beautiful how God is just, he's orchestrating and bringing this, this, this whole thing together. Right? God, God is bringing this thing together. And here's what's beautiful about how God does marriage. He has this balance that the world just doesn't have when it comes to marriage. God never overvalues marriage, and he never undervalues it. He doesn't put it too high or too low. He puts it exactly where it belongs. But the world that we live in, they, do, they, do, they always have either really too high or too low. They either put it in an idolatrous place where it shouldn't be, or they put it down here where it shouldn't be either. They either overvalue it or undervalue it. So let me, let me give you an example of how our culture does this. So in our culture right now, one of the ways in which our culture overvalues marriage and puts it in a place that only God should be in is because right now, with all the things that are going on politically in our nation with the LGBTQ community, one of the reasons why they desperately want marriage is because in their minds, they think that marriage is going to fix everything. They think marriage is where you're going to find purpose and meaning and satisfaction and contentment. Listen, I can tell you that none of those things are found there. We could have echoes of that, but ultimate satisfaction, ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose is not found in marriage. And so our culture is like, oh, we need marriage because if we have that, we're going to find everything we need. No, no, you're not actually. Give it a few years and you'll see. Okay? So on the one hand, our culture idolizes marriage, but at the very same time, our culture devalues it. And here's how our culture devalues it. Every, almost every movie and every show that you watch on TV, here's how marriage is portrayed. One, marriage is portrayed extremely boring. It's extremely boring. And almost always, the man is an imbecile. The man is an idiot. He can't tie his shoes. He can't, he's just an idiot. He's a fool. And he's always the, the butt of every joke. In almost every show and every movie you watch. The woman almost always is the hero figure. She's the smart one, the unsatisfied one who's looking somewhere else to find satisfaction. And they're just staying together because they want to do it for the kids. That's what you see. And in and, and, and those movies, the only people that are heroes, the only people that are, that are elevated are the people who are in extramarital affairs. The people who are single or sleeping around. Those are the people who are, you, this is the one, this is who you want to be. That's where the romance is. So our culture, at the very same time, overvalues marriage because it makes marriage something that it's not. And at the, at the same exact time, it undervalues it and gives us a picture of marriage that marriage is not. That's, that's how messed up we are, guys. I, I was reading an article this week about the view that we have of animals, Americans have of animals. And because of our low view of marriage, what's actually happened is we've elevated animals to a place where they shouldn't be. Okay? I have, I have listen, I have, I have neighbors, okay? I have neighbors who, who, well, the other day, they were, they were like, oh, uh, um, I was talking, I said something about my kids and my daughters. And he's like, yeah, you know, we got to take the kids on the walk. I'm like, oh, man, you guys had kids? And, 
He was talking about his dogs, dude. Your kids? Okay. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's what, here's what, here's what the article that I read said. It was, it was very well written. They said, our culture, because we have minimized marriage, and because of the way our hearts work, we've had to replace marriage with something. And what some people have done is they go to the animal world. So Adam knew clearly that Eve was different from the animals. He knew it because he responds totally different from her, from them. He, he sees her and he's like, finally, a bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Someone who is equal to me yet different from me. He doesn't say that about any of the animals, right? But, but, but in the article, they, they use dogs in particular. And they said one of the things that happens in our culture with dogs is we think that dogs are men's best friends. And okay, whatever, that's fine. But the problem is that's not actually factually true. Here's why. Because what the person said in the article is that whenever you're interacting with a dog, you always have to meet the dog at its level. The dog can never meet you at your level because it's a dog. Okay? It can't talk. It can't really listen. It doesn't have a soul. It's a dog. I'm not, and I don't have a problem with dogs. But I just know they're not humans. Okay? You, you, whenever you try to have a relationship with an animal, you always have to lower yourself to each its level because it's an animal. You just can't do it. And here's the thing about our culture. Let me, let me give you a picture of just how messed up our culture is. Back in 2007, Michael Vick was the starting quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. Okay? And here's what happened to Michael Vick. Michael Vick had a dog-fighting crime ring in his house, right? And it was all these, they would bring all these dogs from all throughout Atlanta, and they would have these full-blown fights, and dogs were dying left and right, which is horrible. I'm not trying to, that was horrible, right? He got in big trouble. That was 2007, right? He got in really big trouble, went to jail, and rightly so. Two years later, in 2009, so two years, 24 months have gone by, two years later, Tiger Woods, the golfer who just golfed in the Masters, got in a car accident. That car accident ended up revealing all these things, that he was uh, uh, abusing drugs, he was, in a, uh, he was cheating on his wife with porn stars and prostitutes, and it was just this horrible thing. It all came out, right? So, so remember the timeline. Michael Vick's thing happened in 2007. Tiger Woods cheated on his wife and ruined his family in 2009. In 2010, I read an article on Sports Illustrated, and it was, a, it was a poll that was taken by Americans on who the most hated athlete was in America. You know who was still number one? Michael Vick. Tiger Woods was number three. So, so even though the, 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 the dog thing happened in 2007, and the adultery happened in 2009, in 2010, the guy that had the, the, the thing happen previously was still the most hated athlete. This dude ruined his family and his children and his marriage. And the most hated athlete is the one that had a, a dog fighting. Again, I'm not trying to say dog fighting is fine. But what I'm saying to you is that's how, that's how messed up our culture is. That's how skewed our view is of marriage. Okay? So the first thing you see is you see the making of marriage. And according to the passage, the person who makes marriage is God. Now, the second truth I, wanna, I want you guys to see today is I want you to see the, the mandate of marriage. In this passage, we are given a mandate. We are given a command that we need to follow if we are going to have a biblical marriage. And actually, it comes from verse 24. Look what it says in verse 24 of the passage. It says, that is why, listen to this, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So, so in verse 24, what we are given is we are given a mandate. We are given a command. 
that we need to follow if we are going to have biblical, God-centered marriages. So he actually gives two commands in this passage. The first one is he says a man, a, a man is to leave his father and mother. And the second one is he's to be united. Now, in the King James Version, the word united is cleave, which sounds way better, and it rhymes with leave. So I'm going to use that instead, okay? So the mandate that we are given is a two-part mandate. If we are going to have a biblical, God-centered marriage, a marriage that is successful in God's eyes, we need to leave. That's the first part of the mandate. And then we need to cleave. And we're going to explain both. The first thing you need to do if you are going to have a biblical marriage is you need to leave. It says you need to leave your father and your mother. Now, here's what the word leave means in Hebrew. It means to depart. It means to relinquish. It means to let go. It means to be set free. Now, why is that word so important? Because when people, when two individuals get married, when they step into that marriage, they bring with them preset factory settings. Preset default factory settings. So each individual is in a blank slate, but they come into marriage with a view of discipline, with a view of money, with a view of time, with a view of sex, with a view of conflict. They, they both come into the marriage, and their views on those things didn't come from nowhere. It came from their family that they grew up in. Okay? So most conflict that happens in marriages is because one person is trying to do things the way their parents did it, and the other person is trying to do things the way their parents did it. And so, so the, the first, this happened with my wife and I. When we first got married, she grew up in a home where conflict was pretty much ignored. Like you, there would be fights and then everyone would go into their own rooms and then it, over time it would try to heal itself. And, then, and I grew up in a house where we would scream at each other and yell at each other until it was dealt with. And so our first fight, she runs into the bedroom and I'm outside screaming. Little did we know that the reason why we were fighting was because neither of us had left our father and our mother. We were doing what we were taught to do. So, so we, we, we got money. We, our first check, I remember it like it was yesterday. We got our first check. I want to put all our money, I want to go spend all our money. She wants to go save all our money. So that caused conflict. Okay? When, and then when we had our children... I wanted to discipline one way, and she wanted to discipline another way. Why? Because every time you enter a new season of marriage, whatever season you're entering, you're bringing all the baggage from your childhood and your upbringing with you. Okay? So you have to depart. You have to let go. You have to be set free from your past. You have to. You have to acknowledge it, and you have to let it go. You have to. Now, some of you are sitting here, and you're thinking, oh, well, this has nothing to do with me because I hate my parents. My parents were horrible. I never want to do what my parents did. So this really has nothing to do with me at all. Here's why it does, though. The person who hates their parents is just as controlled by their parents as the person who loves their parents. Here's why. When you love your parents, here's what you do. You go into the marriage, and you want to do everything that they did, right? When you hate your parents, you go into your marriage, and you're like, I'm going to do everything they didn't do. But here's the thing. You're still limiting yourself in your options because you're stuck with the opposite of what they did. So I don't care how bad your parents were. There's no way that your parents were 100% bad. Let's say there was 70% that they did bad and 30% that they did good. You're not going to have the 30% good as an option because you hate everything your parents did. So now you've just limited your options and you're just as controlled as the first group even though you can't stand your parents. So, so, so the, the thing is, is, it doesn't matter whether you loved your childhood or you hated it. If you don't deal with, if you don't leave it, if you don't let it go, 
there's going to be problems. Even something like birth order affects things. I'm the firstborn, and I am very much a firstborn in how I behave. My, my wife was a, 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 a baby of the family, and she acted like a baby, in the, a baby of the family. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just the reality. So even the birth orders are, are, play a role. Okay? It's, it's funny that I actually will understand my oldest daughter better, and she will understand our youngest daughter better. That's how messed up we are. And if we don't call it what it is, if we don't deal with it, we are going to have issues. We are going to have problems. You need to be aware of the fact that if you don't leave it, if you don't let it go, if you don't move away from it, you are bringing that into your marriage. And listen, neither background is more superior than the other one. Because sometimes there's conflict with one side of the family, and so you prefer the other side of the family better. And so by default, you think that what they did was better than it. No, no, neither is better. Both of you have to come in and, 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 and push everything away and start with a blank slate. That's what it means to leave. That's the first part of the mandate. The second part of the mandate, though, is equally as important. Not only are you to leave, but then you're also to cleave. That's what he says is, is united, to cleave. The word there, united, the word cleave, it means to be glued to someone. It means to be stuck to someone. It means to be fastened and binded to someone. It means to, be, to cling to someone. That's what the word means. The word cling is the one I most prefer because it, it gives the idea that you can't just do that once. You have to do it every single day. If your marriage is to be a biblical marriage, you need to cleave to your spouse every single day. You need to cling to them. You need to pursue them. They need to pursue you and you need to pursue them. And here's what that looks like. Here's what it looks like. Well, the one first way that it looks like is that you guys will start brand new. So instead of you saying, hey, we're gonna, this is my view of discipline and this is my view of discipline, you guys are going to sit down and have a conversation on what your view of discipline is going to be as a couple, what your view of money is going to be as a couple, what your view of, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of sex is going to be as a couple, your view of, of whatever, fill in the blank. But, but to, to cling, to cleave means that you are starting brand new and you are establishing a brand new way of life. And listen, sometimes you have to be willing to adjust it. Let's say that you do the first part right, you leave, and then you, you cleave. What some people do because they're, they can just be stubborn, once they choose a way of doing it, they, they don't long longer let it, they don't longer adjust. And so if they raise their first child a certain way, they try to raise every child the same way. But, but part of cleaving is you adjust. It's, it's, it's very organic. So what worked with one child might not work with the third one. Okay? So, so but, but cleaving means that you are constantly in conversation, you are constantly pursuing, you are constantly glued and stuck and, and pursuing one another and, and establishing a new culture. Not your parents' culture, but a new culture in light of the marriage that you guys have created. That, that's why this is so important. Here's the other thing that cleave means. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in uh, his book, The Four Loves, has a chapter on romantic love, which in Greek is the word eros. He says that the thing about romantic love is that when you look at romantic love, you think to yourself, oh, romantic love is all about pleasure. But he says that's actually the furthest thing from the truth. He says real true eros is not romantic love. It's not just you looking at the person and trying to find pleasure or sex from them. But it's actually true eros, if done correctly, what it is is you want the entire person. And you know this, right? When, when, when you're pursuing someone, when you first are falling in love with someone, you don't want to just have them physically. You want to know their mind. You want to know their past. You want to know why they do what they do. You want to know everything about them. He said that true eros, true romantic love, desires the beloved, not just their body. 
And he said that what we've done in our culture is we've confused eros with lust. And so we, we think that eros is uh, uh, lust. And so you go out and you have sex with a person. And he's like, here's how you know it's not eros. If within, he's, like, he's, like, he's like, if all you want someone is for their body, then it's not eros, and here's why. He's like, because if all you want someone is for their body, then you're using them the way you would use a pack of cigarettes. And he's like, what do you do when you're done with a pack of cigarettes? You throw it away. See, real romantic love, real romantic love, real eros means that you are cleaving to the entire person, not just the part that makes you feel better, but you love the beloved for the beloved's sake. It's one of the closest examples of agape love, which is the love God shows us when done correctly. That's what cleaving means. You need to be cleaving. And then, look what he says. He says that, and they become one flesh. So you have to leave, then you have to cleave, and then you become one flesh. Now, here's what's interesting about that phrase, one flesh. When you get married to someone, and you make vows in front of a pastor, right, here's, here's what you're doing. The moment you make vows, and you, before God, you say, we are going to be one, you become one positionally that very day. So in God's eyes, you are one from the day you get married, positionally. But practically, that's not really the case, right? When you get back from the honeymoon, there's still problems. You're still over here and they're still over there. The reason why cleaving is so important is because cleaving takes what's true of you positionally, which is that you are one flesh, and it makes it true of you practically. So the longer you are married, what's already true positionally that you are one flesh should become more true of you practically as you cleave to one another. So my wife and I, in 20 years, we should, be closer, we should be closer to being one flesh, even though positionally we're already one flesh. We should be practically closer because I am pursuing her and she is pursuing me. That's what he's getting at here. That's why this is so important, because that's what the one flesh concept means. And, and, and Tim Keller uh, has this, makes this really good illustration about this. He said, listen, when my wife and I first got married, he, they've been married, I think, over 40 years now. He said, when we first got married, when we first got married, he's like, for the first 10 years, we were one flesh positionally, but we were not one flesh practically. He's like, here's how I knew that I, my wife and I were becoming one flesh practically. When I started making decisions, and every time I would make a decision, I would, ha- I would think about what she was going to think. See, for a long time, you just make decisions. You might be married, one flesh, but you don't really know each other that well yet. And what happens is as the longer you cleave and pursue each other, there comes a point where you see something, and then you know exactly what your spouse would think about that situation. And you make a decision based with both of your insights, not just yours. And so what he says is that having a wife has diversified his wisdom portfolio. That's what he says. Having a wife, he's like, now when I see things, I don't see things from a woman's perspective because that's too general. I see things from my wife's perspective because every woman's different. I know what my wife would think. I know what I think. And I make decisions based on both of our That's what becoming one flesh means. So positionally, you're one flesh, but as you cleave, as you pursue, you then practically become one flesh over time, okay? So the first truth we see here in this passage is we see the making of marriage. The second truth that we see here, if you could put my three points up, the second truth we see here in this passage is we see the mandate of marriage. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the meaning of marriage. Here's why I end with the meaning, because even though in this passage there's a lot going on, if all you did was look at this passage, you would actually miss out on the actual meaning of marriage. The meaning of marriage is much deeper and much bigger than what we see here in this passage in front of us, okay? 
Now, I want to read for you, as we talk about the meaning of marriage, I want to read to you the last verse in chapter 2. It's a verse that you wouldn't even really pay attention to if you, if you weren't really trying to focus on it. Look what it says in verse 25. It says, Adam and his wife, listen to this, were both naked and they felt no shame. Now, that's, that's like the most anticlimactic ending to a love story ever, Right? Hollywood, it all builds up at the end. Like the music gets built up and it's this, this really, really uh, romantic part. In the Bible, it's super boring. It's just, oh, and, and they were both naked and they had no shame. But actually, even though it seems like very anticlimactic, this verse is probably the most important verse in this whole passage. You know why? Because verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2 was the last time things were right. Verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2 was the last, thing, last time that things were going to God's plan. It says that they were naked and they felt no shame. Now, here's why this verse is so important. One, because it was the last time things were not were right, were right, because literally one verse later in, in, in verse one of chapter three, it all falls apart. But think about, think about what's going on in the garden. In verse 25, we are told that they are naked yet clothed. Now, now follow with me, track with me. They are fully naked, yet they are fully clothed. What, what, what do I mean? Well, I don't mean they're clothed uh, physically, but spiritually they are clothed in God's love, in God's grace, in God's presence. So they are fully naked, and yet at the same time, before the fall, they are fully clothed. And there's no shame because they, there was no sin yet. Shame only comes when sin's involved. Now think about what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. They went from being naked yet clothed to being clothed yet naked. I know somebody missed that. Okay, so that was, that, that was good. I'm going to say that again. So, 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 listen. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were clothed yet naked. Sorry, they were naked yet clothed. So they were fully naked and yet they were fully clothed because they were loved by God in his presence and were receiving his grace and mercy. So they're, they're fully naked and yet they are fully clothed. After the fall, they, they hide and they go get uh, leaves to cover themselves. And all of a sudden, they are fully clothed or partially clothed. They are clothed and yet now naked. It all flipped. Everything changed from that moment on. And some of you might be sitting and thinking, nah, it was, you're kind of making a big deal about this. It really isn't that big of a deal. Well, here, I'll show you why it's a big deal. Because R.C. Sproul, who passed away a few months ago, he has this illustration that he uses to describe just how much this moment in history impacts us to this day. He gives an illustration. He says, imagine you were sitting in a room, right? And you're in the room and, 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 a, and an acquaintance of yours walks in. They walk in, they lock eyes with you. You know they see you, you see them, and they don't acknowledge you. They just walk right past you and act like you're not there. He says, if that happened, there's a part of you that gets angry. There's a part of you that feels disrespected. There's a part of you that feels indignant. Like, how dare you not acknowledge me? I know you saw me. How dare you not acknowledge me and approve of me? Right? That's our first response. Now, he says, now imagine if the opposite happened. Let's say if that same person walked in, sat in the table, right across from you at the table, and just stared at you for 15 minutes. Never said a word, just stared at you like a creep. You know what happened after a while? You would get equally as angry and equally as offended and equally as bothered. But this time, it's not because they noticed you, but because they didn't notice you, but because they noticed you too much. 
He says, here's how messed up we are as human beings since this moment. There's a part of us that desperately wants to be known, desperately wants to be approved of, desperately wants to be noticed and accepted. But at this very same time, there's a part of us that's hiding, wearing masks, and doesn't want to be seen or exposed. Both are true at the same time because of what happened in this passage. Both are true. And, and I, I, I came across an article this week where, where, uh, where the author said, here's the thing. We are so, actually it was a commentary, and he said, we, we have been so affected by this that to, to this day, the reason why we have blinds, the reason why we have garage doors, the reason why we have shower curtains, the reason why we have makeup, the reason why we have a multi-billion dollar clothing industry is because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. We are all trying to hide. We all desperately want to be known. We all desperately want to be seen. But at the same time, we desperately don't want to be known and we desperately don't want to be seen all at the same time. We, we want someone to fully know us and yet fully love us, but we know we really can't find that and so we kind of just give up on both. That's how bad this moment was. And so the question is, what, what can we do? What, what, what's the hope? This is horrible. Well, not only did it, did it change everything then, but it's still affecting everything now. So, so what's the hope? What, what can we possibly do? Well, here's the crazy thing. God actually does something about it in the passage. If you look at chapter 3, verse 21, not, I don't have it on the screen, but here's what it says. So God sees that they are naked. God knows what they did. They attempt to cover themselves with these man-made masks and, and outfits. And then it says in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, you can read right past that because you're like, okay, garments of skin. He made them a jacket. Corella DeVille, got it. Like, he made, them, he made them a jacket. They were naked. Now they're wearing a fur coat. Got it. Done. But here's the thing, and here's what the passage just reads right past. In order for there to be a garment of skin, an animal had to die. There had to be a sacrifice in order for them to be covered. Someone had to go in order for them to be brought in. Okay, so, 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 so don't miss this. Don't miss this. What God does in this passage is he gives a temporary solution to an eternal problem. He knows that this is just a Band-Aid. All God is doing by giving them garments is he, he's, he's putting a Band-Aid on cancer because he knows that he's not ultimately fixing the problem. But in the same passage, in Genesis chapter 3, he looks at the serpent, who's the one that brought all the issues into the, into the situation. He looks at the serpent and he says, listen, 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 you think you won, but from this woman is going to come a seed that's going to crush your head. And so God is at, at the very same time that he's from providing a temporary solution, he is providing us a permanent solution, which is a seed that will come. Here's the beautiful thing about the Bible. In the Bible, there's a wedding at the beginning, and praise be to God, there's a wedding at the end. Because here's the thing, we have a bridegroom in this passage, and the bridegroom is Adam, and he's failing miserably. And because of his sin, we all are in trouble. Because of his sin, we all are naked. Because of his, skin, his sin, we are, all on, we are all ashamed now. But there's another wedding, and the other wedding brings a better Adam, a better bridegroom. And he comes, you see, in this passage, Adam is passive. He doesn't do anything to go look for his wife. This, the last Adam is going to come from heaven down to earth in order to find his wife. He's going to cross not just an aisle, he's going to cross all of the cosmos to come find us. Because he's the better Adam. He's the greater Adam. He's the greater bridegroom who's going to meet us at a greater wedding. See, in the, 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 the first Adam is in a garden, and because of his sin, 
We all became naked and we all, we all fell into shame. The last Adam is in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And because of his obedience, now we all can find clothing. And now we all can find grace because of what he did for you and for me. So he's the greater spouse, the greater Adam, the greater spouse. I mean, the, the, he's in the greater garden, will provide a greater wedding for us. He did all of those things for you and for me. And not only that, he's also the greater helper. We said that the helper is someone who comes alongside you with strength and with, with power, someone who is equal, who's the same to you, but at the same time very different from you. That's what the woman is. Jesus is the greater helper because he comes and he's like us on one hand because he's human, but he's very unlike us on the other hand because he's holy. He comes alongside us and the first helper, all the first helper can do was compliment us. This final helper completes us. That's what he did for you and for me. And so now, now we, we are in a place where Jesus, the ultimate bridegroom, think about what a bridegroom does to his bride. On the, on the day of the wedding, what he does is he promises and gives her his heart. Jesus gave us his heart, and all we've done since he gave it to us is trample on it, spit on it, and when he came down to find us, we killed him. So think about it, think about it. You might be in a very bad marriage, but the worst marriage, the worst long-standing marriage in human history is God's marriage to us. Because we are terrible spouses, and we cheat on him again and again and again and again. Jesus had every right to turn his back on us. He had every right to not come down. He had every right to forget us. Instead, what he does is he goes to the cross, and it says in the Bible that they, they cast lots for his garments. So that he died naked. In movies, they always have some type of outfit on him. He was naked when he died. So Jesus became naked so that you and I might be clothed. Jesus took our shame so that you and I might get grace. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that when you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you a robe of righteousness. He takes off his robe, he takes your sin, and then so now we go from being naked to being clothed. And not just clothed with anything, but we are clothed with the righteousness of the Son of God. So that means that we are fully accepted, fully loved, fully approved of, and fully secure. So now that changes the way I do marriage now. Now when I go to my spouse, I don't need to find ultimate satisfaction from them. I don't need to find ultimate approval from them. I don't need them to be perfect because my Savior was perfect. I don't need them to save me because my Savior saved me. I don't need them to do everything right because he did everything right. Now I can love my wife with no strings attached and be the spouse that I was always supposed to be because my tank is filled by him, not by her. Listen, the reason why we are such bad spouses horizontally is because we are such bad spouses vertically. You don't believe the gospel in your marriage. That's the problem. Because if you really believe the gospel, it changes everything. You know, I was reading this week, and one of the things that struck me about this passage, this is just so, I kept looking at it, and I'm like, man, I just wish that we can get a second chance. I wish that we, could, that we could almost hit rewind and go back because Adam and Eve were so innocent and everything was so good. Why did they have to mess everything up? I wish I could go back to that moment, right? That's one of the things I kept telling myself again and again and again this week. And I'm like, man, that was so much better than anything we have right now. But here's what's crazy. In the passage, they were innocent and they fell from innocence, right? That's what they did when they sinned. One of the statements that most bothers me is when people say, oh, that person fell from grace. You know why? Because you can't fall from grace. You can't fall from grace because no matter how, how much you fall, grace is always at the bottom. Grace doesn't meet you at the top. 
Grace meets you at the bottom. Grace is like gravity. The lower you go, that's where grace is. And so praise be to God that this happened the way it happened. Because they didn't have the opportunity to thank God for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. We know God much better. We can thank God for much more. The Bible says that he who has been forgiven much loves much. So we have so much more to love God for because he has forgiven us for so much. He has brought us from so far. So now praise be to God there's another wedding. Praise be to God that not only did we not fall from, we fell from innocence, but praise be to God that we will never fall from grace. When we get to heaven, it's going to be glorious. Listen, if you're in a bad marriage today, you're one day going to be in an amazing marriage. If you're single and you never get married, you're one day going to, you might never experience the horizontal marriage, but you are going, if you place your faith in Jesus, you are going to experience the vertical one. And listen, the arms that are ultimately going to satisfy you, when you fall into the arms of God, those are the arms that are going to satisfy you. Those are the arms that are going to secure you. Those are the arms that are going to approve of you. So whether you are in a good marriage, don't idolize it because there's a better one. If you're in a bad marriage, don't ignore it and don't hate it because it points you to the better one. And if you never get married and never get the opportunity to be in someone's arms, one day you will be in someone's arms. The gospel changes everything. One of the things that Adam says when he sees Eve, he says, at last, at last, that's what it is in the Hebrew says, at last, finally, we can say the same thing. We can look at Jesus and we can say, at last. Finally, I have found a spouse who loves me, satisfies me, dies for me, sacrifices for me, is perfect for me. In Jesus, we have found someone who knows us fully and who loves us fully. Amen.